Today, on Demystifying Science, we're looking at how there are two opposing forces that steer the course of consensus science. Quality of thought, on one hand, and narrative control, on the other. It's an exploration that was inspired by our conversation with a next-generation propulsion researcher and the host of the beloved YouTube channel, Alien Scientist. Jeremy has grown a community around cutting-edge engineering and has started a lab that builds and tests various prototypes to see what gems may have fallen through the cracks of history. The hard thing about this process is that anyone interested in nature's kitchen is going to have to wade through a ton of dead-end ideas before finding something that's worth following. But extreme patience rewards the seeker, for even the most insane theorists will occasionally produce a pearl of wisdom. If researchers on the cutting edge dismissed everything that the mainstream labeled as pseudoscience, though, maps of the universe would probably still have Earth at their center. Yep, so in this episode, we're talking about that powerful pejorative term, pseudoscience, which conflates the two ideas, outright charlatanry and scientific heresy, where pseudoscience is invoked to silence challengers to the status quo. So buckle up, folks, it's time to demystify some science. So the scientists that get paid to do a study for Big Pharma, for example, and the reports are skewed in the favor of the, the people giving them the funding, is that pseudoscience? So just because you can get empirical formulas to describe things doesn't mean that, that that's the essence of what's happening. By ridiculing perceived threats, competition, and inconveniences to preferred theories with words like cranky, loony, or pseudoscientific, it's possible to silence alternatives to business as usual. But as we'll point out later, many theories that are viewed as pseudoscientific when they're first introduced actually end up becoming the preferred explanation a ways down the road. So what we're going to do is clear the waters a little bit. We're going to come up with a robust definition of pseudoscience, which after almost 2,000 years of back and forth should be a cinch, and then we're going to explain how gratuitous use of the word became such a powerful force in shaping consensus. Finally, we'll point out some ways in which the pejorative stifles innovation due to fear of social repercussions. We start out with a question that humans have been working on for at least 2,000 years, at least since they started writing down how things happen in the natural world. And that is, how can you tell if an endeavor is scientific versus when it isn't? Aristotle advanced the premise that a scientific pursuit explains events without leaning on supernatural phenomena. He suggested that a scientific explanation would lead phenomena to be better known. In other words, science considers complex questions like how an egg develops into a chicken and breaks them down into a series of simpler processes that have already been understood. He thought of science as a gradual process where you gain understanding of one mechanism and it allows you to explain more of what you encounter in the world. But it's probably good news for him that it took nearly 2,000 years for somebody to coin the idea of pseudoscience. His mechanistic claims about the origin of animals where scorpions emerge from basil leaves pressed between two sun-warmed bricks and mice emerge from a mixture of straw and rags probably would have drawn some criticism if the term was already in play. Attempting to explain everything at once will do that. When you lay the foundation for 2,000 years of scientific thinking, it's going to be a hit-or-miss endeavor. That's very true. In the millennia since Aristotle defined science, people who are philosophers rather than scientists have been trying to make his definition a little bit more robust. Because explaining without supernatural causes seems to only be one part of the process. And as science has taken a more central role in people's lives, it's become even more important to understand what it is, what it isn't, and what its limitations are. Three ideas from the last century have added a lot of substance to this conversation. 
falsifiability, puzzle solving, and the progressive nature of the modern research program on Earth. Falsifiability as a criterion for scientific thinking was presented in 1934 by Karl Popper, an Austrian philosopher who had a front row seat for the shift away from natural philosophy and towards empiricism. Study of the natural world had recently been broken into three pieces. Biological sciences were discovering that microbes were the source of contagion, chemists were synthesizing antibiotics for the first time, and physicists were laying out new frameworks for thinking about objects that underpinned the previous two disciplines. In this milieu, it suddenly became important to define what was scientific and what was simply a well-presented load of honey. The newly industrialized world had limited resources and so needed to delineate between robust explanations and poorly conceived theories, because only the best, most reliable ideas could even be used in the development of everything from the atom bomb to fertilizer. And this technological mindset prioritized pragmatic utility when distinguishing science from non-science. So Popper makes a proposal. What if the scientific theories are the ones that can be falsified, at least can be imagined to be falsified, and everything else is either unscientific, metaphysics, art, or religion? In his mind, if you could come up with some experiment or demonstration that would cause you to abandon your perspective, then the idea was robustly scientific. If you couldn't, well, then it was indistinguishable from a rational belief. That doesn't seem right, answered Thomas Kuhn. Demanding falsifiability under all conditions required the same thing of verifiability, and that violated a central tenet of scientific thinking. An idea can never be proved right, since you can never know everything, so maybe it can't be proved wrong either. What if science instead was about progressively solving endlessly complex puzzles? In his writings, Kuhn used the difference between astronomy and astrology to illustrate his point. The former looks at the heavens in order to understand why the firmament looks and behaves the way that it does, while the latter constructs star charts and makes predictions about relationships. There's no why in astrology, there's no challenge to unravel, and so that's what disqualifies it from being considered a real science. Kuhn was particularly careful to word his arguments in such a way that didn't imply only the science being done right now was valid, since that sort of thinking implied that science now was somehow better than science way back when. According to his view, knowledge didn't evolve towards some apex point of understanding, it unfolded away from understanding that was held in previous generations. Lastly, there's the progressive nature of the research program. And this idea came from Lakados, a Hungarian philosopher who contended that a theory could be scientific even when there wasn't a shred of evidence in its favor, and it could be pseudoscientific even if congruent with all of what was apparent. The keyword here is yet. Since evaluation according to Lakados requires waiting to see if the future findings would substantiate proposal. He considered this to be a progressive approach to the scientific question where the discipline of the moment was always evaluated in relation to predictions about the future. On the other hand, he considered a degenerative research program, the term that he used for pseudoscience, and he defined it as one that had loads and loads of data, made lots of predictions, but was proved wrong or incorrect at every turn. Rather than taking a step back and reevaluating the research program entirely, Proponents of this degenerative pseudoscience create post hoc additions and adjustments that bring their theories in line with reality, which creates a cobbled together Frankenstein science monster along the way. Combining all three of these definitions, it seems that the sole difference between science and pseudoscience really comes down to intention. Does the theory attempt to approach what is actually happening in nature, or does it merely force the presenter's particular explanation upon the world at all costs? And this is where you really start to go down the rabbit hole. 
Because if you're looking purely at the intentions of the scientists, it can seem like there's a real preference for keeping hold of a favorite theory over solving the puzzle. Under these conditions, where perturbations to an old theory are disfavored, the term pseudoscience isn't being used robustly. It just has a tendency to be applied to everything that challenges the status quo. Especially when you consider the current prevalence of scientism, a mode of thinking that believes so thoroughly in the rigors of empiricism that it says science is the only way to approach reality. It also depends on inductive reasoning, which says the data from one situation can be generalized indefinitely outwards. And if living beings were more uniform, this might actually work. But scientists are starting to figure out, even human ones, that variability between Homo sapiens is enormous and nearly impossible to standardize. A drug as simple as aspirin can have very different effects across different populations. Another strange aspect of scientism is the cult of personality, where some scientists are put on a pedestal and treated like gods. In this paradigm, theories become entrenched not because they're the best theories that have ever been presented, but because the people offering them up to the public are just so good at selling. Stephen Hawking, Michio Kaku, Brian Greene, these people are ostensibly pursuing objective understanding, and yet they're treated as secular theologians who have access to incomprehensible planes of quasi-divine knowledge. Treating scientists like gods rather than fallible humans that massage data and make all kinds of mistakes tends to elevate them to an unchallengeable position of power in society. And by the time that science and the state have combined forces, the term pseudoscience becomes less about figuring out best practices and intentions, and becomes more about controlling the narrative of what theories are acceptable and which ones aren't. Paul Fairbend, a contemporary of Lakatos, saw this coming. In his work Against Method, he says that the consistency condition of science which demands that new hypotheses agree with accepted theories, is unreasonable because it preserves the older theory, not the better theory. Hypotheses contradicting well-confirmed theories give us evidence that cannot be obtained in any other way. Proliferation of theories is beneficial for science, while uniformity impairs its critical power. Uniformity also endangers the free development of the individual. And when science and policy become inseparable, the ability of science to grow, shift, and change is radically stifled. Too much is riding on the words of scientists, too much money is at stake, too much reputation. It's at this point that the term pseudoscience is less about the content of a theory and more of a dismissive insult adjacent to racial slurs and gender-based pejoratives. Yep, the goal is to insult. And the goal of that insult most of the time isn't to alert you to bad science. Instead, it's just to refer to anything that runs against consensus narrative, which is exactly what Faraband was so worried about. There are definitely disciplines that have demonstrated they are not scientific. Everything from astrology to quantum mysticism, but there's more to life than just science. Follow the intentions. Is someone making a quick buck off of you? Or are they providing a service that's actually making the world a better place? Remember, sometimes the ideas that are dismissed most vigorously when they are first proposed end up as the dominant narrative down the line. Popular ideas today like conscious control of the immune system, evolution, endosymbiosis, these are all once considered to be pseudoscience. Even the lab origins of COVID, which you humans are starting to consider again a year down the line. Certainly, many current models and established theories are bound for the dustbin. That's how it's always been, and there's no reason to think it's any different now. So remember, humans, the only way to know if a theory is scientific or not is to consider the intentions of the people writing it. Even the most far-out theories might have a grain of gold, and if you're too quick to look away, you might never find it. The conversation that follows with our friend Jeremy 
is all about exploring the cutting edge of what's possible, especially cutting edge propulsion systems. What's it mean to go against the prevailing winds? How can you actually tell what's worth listening to and what's a waste of time? How do you extract the diamonds from the rubble? And if you want to go deeper, check out the references in the description, and do tell us your thoughts in the comments here, or join the discussion on our Facebook group or on Twitter. This past week has been non-stop daily dives into everything from diet to industrial waste, toxins in shelf-stable foods, COVID and the flu, the nature of the electron. It's been a real mashup of demystification. Yeah, it's rad to see newcomers like Durf Nid, Tom Hartley, Steve Slater, John Sokol, and Alan Derisette jumping into the discussion. And of course, a huge thanks to all our old friends like Daniel Chen, Cheshire Cat, and Ron Park for striving to keep the group locked into the pursuit of objective understanding. And if you like this video, go over and share it on Reddit or wherever you interweb wander. And do subscribe to the channel so you don't miss next week's episode. Growing the community is imperative to brewing the best investigations and recruiting the heaviest guests. So, enjoy the interview, and until next time, demystify Psy, humies. Bye! What kind of stuff have you been testing that you're really excited about? Well, the big one I'm super excited about um, is this 1980s Alsophon experiment with uh, nuclear spin alignments and testing whether that um, nuclear spin and mag nuclear magnetic resonance might have something to do with uh, gravitation, you know, testing what gravitation is there's lots of theories on what gravity is and we don't really have a good on a full you know agreed upon theory i would say about what gravity actually is so there's a lot of different theories that are floating around with our, our scientists and um, this one is particularly about spin alignment it was by a guy named frederick alzafon and, and uh, uh aerospace company called boeing aerospace did a lot of uh did some testing on this back in the eighties. And, um, I want to test this with some of these new materials that have come out in these recent FOIA reports, uh, called spin glasses hmm. and, uh, spin glasses. Um, it's like a, it's like a way, a way that a glass is not like a crystal. It's, it's, um, has all kinds of random alignments of the, of the molecules inside the structure. Um, this is, um, a spin glass is like a random alignments of the magnetic structure of the material. So it has, it has a completely random and mixed up magnetic structure. Um, and this, these types of materials might be better for, uh, you know, producing, um, you know, skins that are, are skins of craft that, you know, like could maybe be if it, if it works in it as anti-gravity when you, uh, hit them with the right frequencies or whatever. So we're going to try a lot of those experiments. Um, we're trying, we're just doing it with magnetic resonance for now and, and microwaves. And we have a couple different uh, frequencies of microwave we're going to try to use and hope, and particularly ones that the way the wavelength interacts with the, the uh, material that we're, we're testing. And, um, and so ultimately the idea is you hope to remove these structures from gravitational influence. 
or see if uh, the gravitational influence changes at all based on what, what, what we're doing to the um, optical and magnetic properties of the material. And you'd be um, able to tell that by a change in weight? Yeah, if the, if the weight changes um, or if the thing flies off the table. Right? Mm. So, uh, so there's a lot of ideas for that. Um, there's a lot of ideas for alternative propulsion going around right now. And um, trying to just hear out all different sides and perspectives on this because there's, you know, a lot of scientists saying no it doesn't work and uh there's a lot of scientists saying oh yes it does and this is a cover-up um so it's 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 interesting time it's an interesting time for science for uh this particular field and you've been sort of doing these experiments and running a lab in your garage for a while now right um i've all right, so let me let me go back to this. I I have uh, I have a little. I don't really have much of a lab here or a garage here. I live in an apartment right now in Rhode Island, but I teamed up uh, with a couple other people, um, several different groups of researchers that are have their own labs and are interested in doing getting into involved with this research. And um, so there's been a couple different um, laboratories that have. Uh, you know, I've teamed up with and gone down to and visited and uh, done some experiments with. So um, I guess I'm just trying to fill in some of our listeners as to sort of what your method is and how you've kind of been running this experimental lab. I don't, can't think of a better word than lab. Uh, yeah, it's like it's like a whole bunch of scientists that already have like a lot of that do a lot of this research online. They're not really p super popular. A lot of them are really you know obscure in, in one way or another. I mean, as far as views go, they're not getting millions of views. Maybe a couple thousand or hundred. Uh, some of them. So I reached out to a lot of these guys. Um, tried to get them on for conversation, uh, to share information, share ideas, um, and also to. Uh, you know, get, you know, share ideas for experiments and watch and watch their experiments as well. Um, there was a group, a, some of the guys that I've teamed up with, um, you know, they've been, they've been good. Some of them, I feel like they've been, you know, going in a direction that's kind of a waste of time in, in my opinion, hmm. you know, cause there's a lot of physics and knowledge that an engineering knowledge that a lot of people don't have or un understand. And that's kind of what we're trying to, you know, trying to educate people, but it's a lot of material. It's a lot of stuff. Uh, theoretical physics is probably one of the hardest things you can do if you really want to do, you know, something that's hard. Um, there's a lot of, lot of material to know and a lot of material to study. I'm still learning, always learning new stuff all the time. And uh, it's so broad of a field that's so it's nearly, it's hundreds of uh, over a hundred years old, you know, since it really became a, a really competitive heavy field of mathematics and science about a hundred years ago. And, and, and since then it's just evolved. There's no way you could learn it all or study it or know it all in, in one lifetime. In fact, you find all kinds of mainstream scientists rediscovering work that, you know, that they, they, they say, look what I figured out. Mm. And then, you know, it goes to peer review and other scientists are like, Oh, well, this is just something Dirac figured out. in you know, 1920, uh, you didn't read this paper. And it's like, oh, you know, it's like this stuff's a lot of it's you find that like it's people rediscovering stuff that's already in the literature and that they just missed or that got like, I don't know, it, just different. It didn't get 
it wasn't well understood at the time and and uh and just got lost or or something Uh, well that's kind of the crisis of science right so you point to the youtube algorithm and you're like well these are their ideas that are getting buried because people aren't being fed these ideas but the algorithm is just a more modern development on how information was passed along in previous generations right so if an idea doesn't catch in people's minds it just vanishes like it never happened right and that a lot of these ideas were thought up by some of these really smart philosophers and scientists you know decades ago and um (laughs) <laughs> whatever re- reason they got lost in the academic algorithm uh, that kept, you know, whatever academics interest, academia's interests were uh, over, at the time, over the years, that these, these things sort of um, disappeared from the curriculum or, or whatever, for whatever reason. And uh, Well, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of time in graduate education on Earth for scientists to be studying the history of the discipline. So it's kind of like dive into the front lines and start working on something that you could get a grant for. And it's not really a lot of energy or space for retrospection. Or for working on something that might not work out in the next year or so, right? So if you're looking for alternative propulsion systems, that's, that's maybe a lifetime of work. A little risky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you could be working on this for the rest of your life, and and then um, and that's the thing I I want I like to stress to my team members because it, this field does also attract a lot of um, people with really large egos, and it's like yeah, I you got to keep people's egos in check because it's like they think they believe they think you know you don't know that you you feel so sure about something but you don't i don't i don't i don't rest that sort of surety in, in anything that i do like like to the to the way that i've i've had some people come in the group and and be so confident that in the next 3 months we're going to figure this out and we're just going to we're going to get funding and 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 you know this investment capital is going to come in, into this and then it's going to it's just going to take off from there and um i tell them i was like you know, there's people have been working on this for a long time. And, and, you know, there's a lot of old timers on this group, in this group, even that have gotten, you know, millions of dollars in grants and funding and done lots of research for a lot of high end companies and high end corporations. And a lot of them have a lot better, you know, academic credentials and scientific understandings than, than, than us. And you're thinking that we're going to do this in the next three months, you know, <laughs> and, and then also like, you know, some people I've had even other people in the group that are, are have been even more wild, um, claiming that you know this Messiah complex, like that, like they're the next, like the next coming of Christ or the coming of you know the next or the real Jewish Messiah or whatever, um, you know, coming to to bring this technology out to save all of humanity and and that that there's some sort of religious um, goal involved and in, and in stuff. It's it's gotten kind of you know crazy. Um, with the egos and stuff that some of these people that get involved and, and trying to keep them in check. Uh, Cause it, 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 it's kind of um, it's kind of like we, I don't have faith that this, there's people on the team that believe that, you know, our government already figured this out in 1950 in the 1950s, right? They give a date 1954 or 55. Why do they, they give that it. date? 
Ah, there's a whole bunch of reasons. I'm putting, I'm actually working on a documentary and putting together like a, a little mini documentary about the, these, these varying theories of uh, the secret space program and that, that, you know, the government already figured this out and they've been covering it up for years. So hmm. if that's true, then it, and then it's going to be, it, it's going to be relatively easy to, to reproduce uh, a anti-gravity machine in the laboratory, right? So far it's not been easy. Um, so I lean on the side that, you know, maybe this is the hardest problem in physics and it hasn't quite been figured out yet. Mm. Um, so, but there's people on the team that believe that no, all physics is modern physics is disinformation. It was purposely, you know, derailed and sent off the wrong track by physicists who figured this out for real in the fifties and wanted to mislead the rest of the community so that they wouldn't figure this out ever. And, um, <laughs> why would they want to do that? What's the motivation? The motivation would be, um, you know, to hide weapons technology from the world um, or, or, you know, and, and free energy and, and uh, anti-gravity mainly is that, you know, it was this, the same bankers that didn't fund uh, Tesla's wireless power transmission devices are the same guys that, you know, sort of, um, that's, the, that's the conspiracy theory anyway. Like standard transport is so lucrative that why open up another cheaper alternative? Yeah, and especially one that competes with oil and, and tra you know transportation too. So and also like from an intelligence perspective, they 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 said like, well, this technology, if it if you you know had warp drive technology and free energy, um, you could basically destroy you know the entire Earth if you wanted to, and they don't want to have anyone in you know trust trust anyone with that sort of power, um, in case they you know. Well, it's funny because there's already enough power in the arsenals of the world to destroy the world over. It seems like people might not actually want to destroy the world, right? It would look like that. Um, it would also seem, you know, you know, the whole Cuban Missile Crisis with Kennedy. He didn't. He very much tried hard not to destroy the world during that. Um, Nobody wants to be that guy, but you know. The few survivors will forever curse your name. You wouldn't right. be cast very well in the in the mythology of whatever happens after the collapse. Right. <laughs> but do you think that this technology, so let's say anti-gravity technology, you said that there's some people that show up with a messiah complex. Do you think that it would change everything for humanity? Or would it just be... I don't know another another technology like like an iPhone sort of thing. Like you have some anti-gravity technology yeah. already, right? You already have like there is a little bit of you know there is a little bit of technology out there that's kind of cutting edge and 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 uh, I think the engineering um, difficulties of a lot of these things as as we're finding out um, the engineering problems are really uh, are difficult to overcome and. Um, like the material questions and the, yeah, the materials, the materials aren't there yet. Um, we have to develop better, you know, infrastructure for producing these materials so that we can make it cheaper and, and find new, you know, in, in there needs to be a market there for these types of materials first in order for there to be innovation in the, in the manufacturing and production process as more people get into that um, is what I feel. And it's, it's not, 
quite there yet. It can be, it could be there with the, the help of like a billionaire, like Elon Musk, I believe. Like if, if, you know, I've tried to reach out to Elon and, and stuff, say he should have a warp drive division mm. um, so that they can work on, you know, at least have somebody at SpaceX working on this or, or doing research on this and accumulating, you know, data and, and or something on it. And, you know, I say, hey, listen, I'll work for free because I'm, I'm already doing it. <laughs> but, uh, it'd be great to, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not. Is he writing you back? I don't think so. Um, I don't know. I don't, I haven't heard back from him yet. So it, 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 it is what it is. We're just doing what we can. Um, what about this Bigelow to... guy? You know him? So, yeah, I know. I've heard of Bob Bigelow. I don't know him personally. Um, we interviewed a lady that worked for him for a while. Uh, maybe you yeah, have some luck. Just... Oh, yeah. Didn't he uh, lay off like 84 of his employees last March uh, right after COVID? Um, so a lot of people, a lot of all, all his entire staff, I think, is uh, is uh, out of work right now. Wow. Yeah, I think that they closed the entire, they closed the entire facility. I think she went over to NASA afterwards. Yeah, I think so too. Well, I heard that they built this whole facility down at Bigelow to to receive and and get the contract to analyze these alien UFO metals, these metals that have been retrieved from UFOs and kept in yeah. uh, the Material Command, at what was AFIT and is now NASIC at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the Material Command. And um, I this think is that the stuff from the 1950s. Um, I have one particular document from 1952, September uh, 18th, 1952, and it's a piece of metal that was recovered from, um, uh, was it in Denmark? There was a, a NATO a NATO carrier group um, naval exercise done by NATO, and they saw there was a UFO sighting during this naval exercise, very similar to that Nimitz encounter, um, where they saw this UFO, they saw a flying saucer. Um, the saucer went and, and it, it was hovering over a certain part of land and then it dropped a piece of metal from, from it and then it took off. And uh, they, actually, they actually went out and recovered this piece of metal that uh, um, Denmark's intelligence uh, agency um, or the military. I have a, There's a whole chain of command in this document. I was going over it the other night and um, – so there's a whole chain of, do- of command in that in, the, in that document. So there's there's there is metals that have been recovered and they're in possession of the military right now. The chain of command went, it went to Germany and then it came to the U.S. Uh, U.S. military um, through those channels. Um, so there's there is that evidence of one piece from the 50s. Um, there might be other other incidents and other debris from earlier incidents. And there's a large a large um, continued suspicion among a lot of Americans that. Um, and then the 1947 Roswell crash uh, was was actually um, some alien uh, debris was recovered there, and and uh, so we haven't. There's a debate still going and raging about that, and whether it was alien or whether it was top secret programs or whether it, what what it, what it was. Um, is there but, any debate as to whether or not it actually happened, or is the only debate about whether or not it was alien technology? Do you know? Yes, yeah, so the Air Force says it definitely. There was a, a, a flying. There was definitely an unidentified flying object event of a crash, something that crashed out in Roswell. I mean, no, it wasn't actually in Roswell. It was in Corona, New Mexico, believe it or not, uh, northwest of Roswell. Roswell is just the nearby Army airfield, and the military admits to that. 
but they say that it was actually a weather balloon from Project Mogul that was misidentified. And that's, that's all it was. So there's a number of witnesses who reported some of the material from the uh, crash site, um, including people afterwards who handled the debris and looked at the material in hangars at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Is this and, uh, Bob Lazar, is his name? No, no, that's not Bob. This is much um, earlier, I think. Oh, okay, sorry. This is um, there's a number of people that it was written about in the '80s. Uh, Stanton Friedman, Don Schmidt, um, and Mike Daniel Daniel Moore. No, what's the guy's name? Moore. Um, William Moore, Bill Moore. Um, <laughs> these guys, these authors from the from the uh, a lot of a lot of the stuff came out in the '80s, and that sparked a lot of public interest in the Roswell case, which led to the 1994 U.S. Air Force report as a response to that. You know, to quell the rumors that this was aliens, it's no, it's just a weather balloon. Look. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of people that not so I'm, I'm not so sure about it. I don't have any beliefs or you know opinions on it one way or the other. Other than that, you know, looks like um, looks like the metals went to a company in, in uh, Ohio called Patel. And they've been kind of like keeping track of all of the they've been in charge of all our national labs the last like 70 plus years and they manage all the national labs so anything that gets invented or goes on any projects that you know happen any, anything that happens there is it, it's done under the eyes of this one company that is basically i mean is not basically it is um a private institution that's unreachable by freedom of information act requests so we talked about well, how do i get a lot of information how do i get a lot of how do we get you know in in, in our country in, in america a journalist and, and scientist and any researcher, any kind of inf information nerd is going to use what's called the Freedom of Information Act request, where they can actually petition and file um, government agencies for, for information. So, you know, say there's a say there's just a, a shooting that happened or a robbery. You can you can file a Freedom of Information Act request to get, you know, the the data and the videos from the police to show that um, of the robbery. If you if you if you choose to do so so you can get the video of it you know um but not all of it or all of it is there stuff that's redacted or classified there is certain, there is certain information that gets redacted and classified and uh for different reasons um to protect individuals who are involved or you know who don't want to be associated or involved with it and uh, there's also and that happens a lot with freedom of information act requests that we've done you know for, for government files on related to this, but it kind of really reaches this black hole um, around this one company that um, should have a lot of information, but it, of course is untouchable by FOIA and unreachable. So it's, it's sort of certainly interesting that they, that also that they manage all the national labs in the, in the U S for all the, those projects. Well, I, this uh, sort of gets at a bigger issue that's going on with the outsourcing of sort of untouchable processes, right? Seems like more and more in your country, defense projects are outsourced to private security and waste disposal power. I think there was a really interesting power snafu over there in the United States. It's kind of weird because you have these private companies that deliver power to your citizens, but it's not like the citizens can actually choose on the market for a different power company if their power company sucks or something. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of that here. Um, 
PG and G in California, and then what happened in, in Texas uh, over the over February and back in uh, February, late February, it was a couple of weeks ago that mm. they had the ice storms and stuff in Texas that a lot of and the brownouts, a lot of power went out there. Then uh, also, yeah, here I I don't have a choice between my electrical provider. There's only one on the market, and they can charge whatever rate they want. And if I don't want to pay it, I don't get electric. I don't get electricity. <laughs> so. It is, uh, it is kind of crazy. Um, do you think that it's always been that way or is it on the rise in your country? Sort of lack of accountability and corporate, you know, stealthiness. Well, you got to understand the, the uh, modern electrical grid is the oldest and most complex network or, or uh, in, of it's the most complex machine in existence on, on the planet today, mm. arguably the, the electrical like machine. Grid. It is a, it is, it is very much like a machine. It is an, an a grid network that was, you know, it's constantly being outdated and updated and replaced and, and, uh, and it's in, in insanely complicated and complex, um, even for, you know, the people that work on it all the time. And, and, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not an easy problem and there's a lot of issues with different power production power you know we we could do nuclear but nuclear has you know harmful byproducts that cost a lot of money to dispose of and they don't go away right away there's some types of clean nuclear like thorium salts and stuff that people have talked about um but then of course you're you know limiting to the, the thorium supply in the world which is in east asia i, I believe and and this there's a whole controversy over that and so well we can't just make the whole thorium market because then thorium's going to go through the roof i think you can get it from seawater i could be wrong about that you can get a lot of stuff from seawater actually there's a there's a lot of stuff in seawater uh, it's quite a quite an ocean out there um but yeah i'd like to see more of uh you know alternative uh you know we have electric grids and stuff and a lot of electrical like solar solar technology sorry we have a lot of like photovoltaics and sol and solar technology and also wind technology and stuff but there needs to be um other you know i think there needs to be updates to our solar photo our photovoltaic systems and our and our methods of producing energy and also our our requirements too need to go down because we base a lot of this our energy consumption needs on electronics that are that they're essentially outdated and could be replaced with a lot better stuff huh. and it's it's kind of a weird that conundrum. argument very often there's a weird conundrum too yeah because elect u.s electronics are always you know subpar for the most part are you know are subpar to uh, the electronics produced over in, in Asia. And um, a lot of our, the infrastructure and manufacturing has gone over to Asia and overseas in the past, you know, 20, uh, 30, 40 years. And meanwhile, um, the electronics industry in the U S and the semiconductor industry is really like gone under. So it's, it's a difficult, difficult time right now for, but if we had better, more efficient superconductors and computer chips, we could certainly um, cut down on our power needs through you know active consumption then of course the power grid it's a it the, there's a, a rate you know for what you know normal usage eight to you know nine to five is peak you know power consumption so if you're using your computer at, at night right now i'm paying a, a lower bill to use this electricity because we're after five o'clock mm. 
and uh, there's a less demand on the electrical grid right now for power. So I'm actually paying a lower rate right now than I would be if I'm you know using power and working during the day. And that's. Um, Have you seen these companies? I think they're like out in San Francisco where they they use that cheap power window to spool up these giant flywheels and store a bunch of kinetic energy in these like yeah. huge spinning discs, and then they sort of just let them rip during the day. Yeah. Yes, because they can charge them up for you know uh, pennies on the dollar at the you know at night when it's not peak uh, rate, and then they can use that energy during the day when the the, the rate is is higher. And uh, yeah, so there's I wouldn't be surprised if some they have engineers that did the ener- the calculations and determined that you know they can that would they be saving money from building all that infrastructure to do this? Then yeah, then yeah, I see that. No. And, um, What's your thoughts? Do you follow the fusion pursuit? So you mean uh, what what they're doing with fusion energy right now? Yeah, are you hopeful for that? Do you have any friends who are looking into it? Or so there's a couple different people working on different types of fusion and uh, understanding. You know how to, so there's I think France. Uh, what's the company in France that's building the big tokamak reactor? There's a Le Tokamak. <laughs> Le Tokamak, France. If you look up Tokamak, France, it's called I-T-E-R. Yeah, I-T-E-R. So that was started in, like, I think 2007, it said. And um, so they're they're doing some work over there. That's the most mainstream one I know of um, out there for, for, for hot fusion. But then there's a bunch of scientists that are working on uh, crystallic or cold fusion or uh, lattice-assisted nuclear reaction, whatever you want to. There's a lot of different words that people call it, um, but apparently this fusion that takes place inside of the confines of uh, crystal lattices and, and structural lattices of materials and, met- and certain types of metals with other types of um, atoms doped into them. One is you know, palladium metal cathode with uh, deuterium or hydrogen, which fuses to make uh, helium. Are you hopeful and- about any of these? <laughs> I am pretty hopeful. NASA just released a report in August 2020 on some of their cold fu- new cold fusion research. If you look up NASA cold fusion 2020, you'll find a study um, on some of them that NASA is now interested in looking into this because potentially, you know, cold fusion would be a lot better, um, a lot easier and a lot better than doing hot fusion because hot fusion has been a problem that they've thrown hundreds of millions of dollars at built very expensive equipment. Um, decades and decades of research has gone into hot fusion and they've not produced a net uh, positive machine that can produce a net net energy, mm. net fusion energy for what they have to put into it to get the actual physics to happen. They're not getting back the energy out of it. And with a uh, low energy nuclear reaction might might be worth funding at this point. There's a lot of people, you know, thinking about it and talking about it, but there hasn't been any, you know, we're competing. We're here. We are competing for a limited pool of resources as, as physicists. And so you don't want to throw money at every idea you can't. And some of these ideas, you know, get lost in the mix because they get called like uh, crackpot, you know, science, Mm. like cold fusion was labeled crackpot science and has been for the past for almost 40 years now and um 
That's a really interesting word, man. There on Earth, it's like the new version of heretic or something. Like I feel like the church used to just point fingers at people and throw them on a fire or something. Burn them. What's up with that? Is this just a holdover from your sort of tribal evolutionary roots, where it's like that person's not one of us? Burn them, something like that, or. I mean, what are people afraid of? They're afraid of the information ecology becoming contaminated. Money going a... to other projects, presumably? Yeah, is it like a zero-sum thing? Is it a stain contamination thing? Is this about purity? Is the this purity about of the, the sanctity of science? Hmm. You know, from my experience with any, any human that's participating in this on the human level is that we're all influenced by a, a combination of all these things, really. Hmm. Um, and it could be even other other issues as well, other things. Maybe they just didn't like the, the scientist who who came out, and he's getting more popularity than them. You know, it could it could be any number of of things. But um, generally, you know, in science, at least we have some sort of degree of our threshold to to a standardization to adhere to. Um, but I think that you know, in the forty years since cold fusion underwent that first. Um, I don't know, flog, public flogging, I would call it. Yes, they, they did, you know, it's, it's kind of like they, they took this straw man, propped it up in front of the public and beat the crap out of it and then said, there, cold fusion is dead. Huh. And, and then now here we are 40 years later and NASA's reluctantly admitting, yeah, um, it's not dead. We kind of made a breakthrough. It's uh, fascinating that they were working on it, though. If it was viewed as something that wasn't worth pursuing, what is, what is that about? I feel like a lot of the attitudes changed in the last uh, 10 years, really the last mm-hmm. decade. Um, you know, and I, I hope that I hope that I've helped with that a little bit too, because I promoted this. I went to this cold fusion conference and this IEP course at, up at MIT here in, in uh, Boston. And I went and actually filmed that and put it online. And I got a bunch of people in, super interested in, in uh, cold fusion. And I'm hoping that, it, it at least opened some doors in, in other people's minds because I know, I know I saw a couple other articles on it. It didn't really hit the mainstream, you know, but we put it out there enough. I feel like it hit this undercurrent hard enough that, you know, there started to be, be some people like, wait a minute, I'm going to start opening my eyes a little bit more to what's going on here. And, and well, hey, wait a minute, let me, let me read some of these guys' papers and, and check out this work that they're doing after they saw some of these presentations and realized, wow, these guys, these guys really do good science they're really you know doing real science they're not pseudoscientists they're not charlatans and and people just trying to get funding and and pay for their you know you know experiments or whatever they're there so that they can have a livelihood from this and stuff so what do you what sorry we're talking about somebody we're talking to somebody about pseudoscience a couple of weeks from now and i was just wondering do you have a definition for that word like, how do you define pseudoscience? Where's the line between something that's scientific and something that's pseudoscience? Right. Um, uh, I guess everyone goes to Popper, right? Mm. Yeah, the scientist's uh, falsifiability is what he he determined, but it wasn't. It's not just that. It's it's you know because you can have a theory that's scientific, but it's not falsifiable, and and you can have falsifiable theories that aren't scientific. So it's it's uh, it's. I think it's what I would just call pseudoscience is that it has, I, I believe you have to, the best test of course is, is experiments. Um, but 
certain things are again unfalsifiable and um you have to i don't know it, it it's it's a definitely a strange world and i i think that the only law of physics that i could you could nail down definitely is that as soon as you nail down a law of physics they ch they change on you <laughs> <laughs> well there's this other issue too we always come across with earthlings which is like you have these beautiful descriptions of natural phenomena right so you have this old dude, Newton, who gave these beautiful mathematical relationships of how the planets move about one another and how the planets move around the star. But there's no real mechanism given for what causes that motion. It's like, okay, they go around in circles and the strength of that attraction varies in some proportion to distance. But why is that? And it's very interesting on Earth, how there's not too much of a priority given to that kind of mechanistic thought. It's more just like, can we describe what's happening with greater and greater and greater and greater and greater accuracy? Well, if I can interrupt here, I think that something that comes from that, or maybe it comes from this... Drives is, it? What? Maybe what drives it, even. Maybe what drives it is that there are people who really seem to genuinely think that Reality is made of math, right? Like tables are made out of equations and stuff? Or, well, okay, so if you go and you listen to somebody tell you what a quantum field is, a quantum field that everything is made out of is vectors, which is equations. A tensors, yeah, or, you know, a higher rank than a vector. So a, ten a tensor or, so this is what we call the empirical argument in science um, or empirical, you know, like, and it's a, it basically says that, you know, there's an argument that says that just because you can use a differential equation to describe the motion of something doesn't mean that it's doing that calculation to, to produce that motion. Right. Right. So just because you, can get get empirical you know relationships and and for empirical formulas in science to describe things doesn't mean that that that's the essence of what's happening right it or the cause you, yeah or the cause of what's happening you're just you're just finding a, a a convenient way of describing it and in terms of you know position and in, in time right hmm. it so, seems like going back to that idea of pseudoscience like, there's usually this undercurrent of bad faith in somebody who's genuinely being accused of pseudoscience. It's like, they're not willing to look at evidence that goes, that's in conflict with whatever theory they're promoting. I think there's like sort of this attitude of bad faith that's being accused as well. What do you think? Um, like, so it, 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 the people that are calling pseudoscience, you mean like if I'm a scientist and I'm saying, well, that's just pseudoscience that is I that guess. what you're talking about? Like, if I, I think so. I'm just trying to understand or, or what it's like to be doing, if you are a pseudoscientist, what does that mean? I mean, does anyone actually think that they're a pseudoscientist or is it just a pejorative <laughs> term that scientists use to hurt each other's feelings or something? It's like the difference between a magician and a con artist, right? So the magician in this case would be the scientist. The con artist would be the pseudoscientist. Yeah, it's like he yeah, can see what yeah. he's doing or something. 
it's like yeah well and then what point does you know what so the scientists that get paid to do a study for big pharma for example and and then the the, the results of the study um you know they turn out that you know they're 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 normally skewed in in 75% of their literature uh the reports are skewed in the favor of the the people giving them the funding or something you know there was a but that could never be pseudoscience right because it's coming from a powerful position is that pseudoscience do we do we call those american medical scientists in the in the in the journal of american medical science that reports these sort sort of uh you know statistics of medical industry findings in in conjunction with funding um in medical science that you know do we call all the scientists who did those studies pseudoscientists it doesn't yeah. seem like it well, it would be That's a kind of what i'm getting at is it seems like it's a sort of power term like it doesn't actually mean anything except for i'm more powerful than you and i don't like what you're doing yeah cuz pseudoscience is almost exclusively a term that's leveraged by those inside the establishment is that fair to say right cuz you know i i i look at you know you have bad and good ideas and you have wrong ideas and you have more correct ideas in in science but you know just to label everyone as someone as pseudoscience because they have a couple bad ideas i don't know that 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 happens a lot too i see that too so it's i find a lot of these guys i don't have to i bring people on my show right scientists there's phd's that i don't agree with everything that they say i don't have to agree with everything that everyone i bring on my show says all these in fact i'd rather have a disagreement of ideas it's certainly more interesting than just nodding along the entire time and i don't like to take you know even and then even the the person who i would consider the biggest pseudoscience there's still some good information sometimes you know you can still find even even the biggest you know uh, frauds out there you'll you'll just they have the there's sometimes a kernel of truth in that stuff so i you know you can't like just oh this person said one thing that i disagree with or that's a bad idea therefore i'm going to call them a pseudoscientist and ban them from from the uh the the church of science um and that's what's really scary is the idea that conversations might get shut down just because someone's being silenced because well they're pseudo scientists i was kind of thinking along sort of shamanistic lines you said the church of science and i immediately thought of the way that humans deal with something like schizophrenia where in previous ages it was viewed as Sure, it's a form of insanity, but it's an insanity that connects you to the divine world of spirits. And the person with schizophrenia, you might actually be able to learn something from them if you were to listen. And now it's just shunted to the edges of society, you know, because people are afraid maybe that it's infectious or that it'll contaminate them somehow. And it seems like the same with these scientific ideas. In the church of science, there's no room for an alternative hypothesis maybe because it threatens the status of the church to open up too many avenues of investigation i just uh i mean it's not quite the same structure as the you know the roman catholic church there is a lot of you know it, it it's 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 an interesting di- dilemma what's going on right now and then there's also there also is people that don't understand the science you know that they're calling out that that you know there's people that are i would say you know almost like 
if we're going to call someone a pseudoscientist, there are people that literally don't have the credentials, but pretend to be scientists and pretend to be saying that they're thinking scientifically about stuff. Um, but then again, it's just, you could just be like, well, okay, well, they're just, they're wrong and they're not, you know, educate is educated on this, this certain thing. And no one, no one knows everything. No one has all this all encompassing, you know, knowledge of, of all, there are some real big whales out there with in terms of knowledge that of people that just know tons of stuff and are, are super, you know, up on their knowledge. But, um, and there are people out there that are, you know, I mean, if you're attempting science, uh, real science, you're, you're, you're engaging in the debate and you're actually doing engaging in experiments and stuff. Um, I guess that makes you a scientist, right? Uh, but <laughs> if, if you're stringing things along and then using scanty data and, and skewing your statistics and your results to, to, you know, to make sure your conclusions match your hypothesis, then I don't think that that's science. And, and maybe that is what a pseudoscientist is, you know, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's, uh... it's interesting because I feel like those people definitely who falsify data and so forth, they'll definitely be attacked in the academy on Earth, but Eventually. they'll rarely be called a pseudoscientist. It's a really interesting sort of class term. I just, I, I just can't get enough of it. Oh, it's a guild term. Yeah, it's a guild thing. It's rare that you have a credential and you've entered the guild that you can be called a pseudoscientist. Yeah. It's only the people that haven't gone through the gilding process that, or have turned their back on the gilding process that are called yeah. pseudoscientists. Yeah, like even if you're an adjunct professor or something, at least you're in the system, you know? It's like, it probably won't be called, you might, they might call you a crappy scientist. They might call you an adjunct, but yeah. they won't call you a pseudoscientist. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's certainly interesting, and uh, I think that stat, if you don't have alternative ideas in science, the field sort of stagnates and kind of, it can get really, you know, boring and dull and old. And I hope that, you know, while there's, you know, some people that come on my, my channel and leave, you know, leave one comment that says pseudoscience and that, that's all they say. There's a, there's a lot of people on there that are like, you know, Hey, this is like interesting stuff, you know, like I'm actually, you know, I'm getting me to think outside the box on a lot of these things. And maybe that's not a real bad, maybe that's not a bad idea. You know, I could be wrong, you know, that's all right. You know, I can think outside the box and be like, well, that's silly and that's not going to work and let's try it. No, it doesn't work. But this, I don't know. I, I feel like that. I, I feel, I don't feel like I'm doing a disservice to science at all with, uh, by trying to shake things up. I mean, it's the worst thing. What's the worst thing that could happen? I could be wrong. Oh, well, I love that. Yeah, definitely. So, what's next for you guys? Are you trying to expand your laboratory, or where's the, where do you go from here? Trying to get the right team. We have a, a good team together already. Um, trying to just refine it down and get like a good spot where we can all do the experiments that we want to do and, and find a, a place where we can collaborate. And um, I've been trying to reach out to a lot more um, businesses and companies that are doing some interesting manufacturing and research and resources and stuff to see if there is any room for collaboration or partnerships in that regards. Cause I feel like it, it's going to take a, and you know, the help of an existing business that has infrastructure that's already set up to do something similar so that, you know, we, cause we're, we can't really just start from nothing and the ground up we, that we already have, we have to find someone out there who's, 
already doing something similar and is interested. And um, so that's kind of what we're, where we're going with it. Uh, just gradually trying to reach out to more people, um, do more interviews and, and get a, and build the audience, build the, um, build the network of people who are interested in pursuing alternative propulsion and doing experiments with it. Cause it's a big and growing community as we found. And there's more and more people coming out of the woodwork all the time, including, you know, hope, including a lot of these older people, gentlemen who came from these programs that, you know, even if it's some guy that convinced now convinced Boeing to give him, you know, $10,000 in grant money to, to try out some stupid idea. <laughs> oh, well, we'll bring him on and, and, and see what he has to say and see, see how his idea worked and, and went, you know, and what's the harm in that? It's, it's like here, this is part of history. It was, you know, you never heard about it because it's, you know, so obscure and that you, you would never know it existed. But here, here I'm trying to bring history out. And, and so what if it's a 40 year old idea that didn't work? It's still worth showing because someone else might have that idea, you know, 10 years from now and be like, oh, let me look this up. And then, oh, wait, I found out a guy that, that had this idea a long time ago and it didn't work. So it's not a waste of time for me to, to, to do this and publish it even if it you know gets called pseudoscience by someone who's you know sees that as the first introduction to my channel and it's like well this guy's wrong i don't need to watch anything else on this guy's channel no we have a lot of other content and i don't know it's it's uh it's quite a game you know i think that you have to oh sorry when you have so much information and then and it's all about first impressions and and the people who have 10 minute attention spans thanks to you know modern media and stuff so it's it's difficult. So I think I need to do more condensed summaries of, of breaking down this stuff. But for right now it's, it's good to get a like big information dumps because it's all fresh and new information and it's good to throw it all on the table. And then we can sit there in the next you know year or two and, and, and mull this, uh, you know, put it through the food processor and, and, and uh, refine out the chunks that, you know, that we can put into three minute, five minute digestible chunks for people to, so that they don't get bored and, you know, aren't, don't have to sift through all the pseudo the pseudoscience to get to the real science. So. Yeah, it might sort of help people find the particular material they're really interested in too. I mean, that was like one of the amazing things that's happened with information on your planet in general is like you start off with everybody having web pages that are kind of unrelated and unconnected, and or before that even just books and libraries and all the libraries are disconnected, and eventually. You get to the point where now you have incredible search engine, a incredible search engine, but that's a different matter. But you really had to find a way to, to dig through all that data. And I suppose that's kind of what you're talking about is finding a way to synthesize all the little pieces that you've learned over the years and direct people into the right funnels. And to help people find things because there's just such a huge amount of information that's available even on your channel like many of your videos are really really technical presentations on very difficult to understand subjects and somebody can show up and get a sense of well this isn't what they're doing at you know Boeing right now and so that must mean that it's fringe and I don't understand it so see you later pseudoscience 
But giving people the opportunity to encounter it in a simpler way is maybe necessary in order to actually kind of pique their curiosity enough to get them to understand that Boeing isn't the only place where this sort of research can happen. You can actually do the research on your own, which is incredible. The fact that you have a platform where you've gathered people together that are interested in the subject and now you've actually gone from talking about it on the internet and conferences to testing it, like, that's, that's amazing. It's pretty rad. I wouldn't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks, man. I, I, I appreciate the compliments and stuff and I, I just feel like we have so much further to go and um, I don't, and it gets just, discouraging sometimes when people on my team think that this is going to happen in you know the next couple of months and uh you know i i i'm hopeful right i hope that happens but i'm not you know i'm optimistic right but i'm not gonna like bank on it right i'm not gonna like be like oh well this is definitely gonna happen you know i'm i'm ready for the this to be a long haul for this to be you know uh something that goes on for 10, 10 years until we get, you know, infrastructure set up to actually get the right materials and build something that, that might work. But, you know, there's a lot of hope too, um, that we could figure this out because, you know, there's so much evidence of these craft out there that have these capabilities and more, more evidence uh, comes out all the time. Um, that I just feel like, you know, it, it, there's these things are being seen out there. There's that they they, ha, they have these capabilities that we're observing. We can't, we can't. It can't be impossible, right? It can't be impossible. We're seeing it. You know, like is this? You know, unless these things are illusions or they're manifestations of of some sort of more, you know, complex program that's making you know making us see these things that aren't there. But I doubt it because those technologies couldn't exist. These things go back to the fifties that when these technologies didn't exist, they didn't have these capabilities to do, you know, Mach nine, Mach 10 things and, and, and do 90 degree turns. And these things have been seen, they're documented going back, you know, decades and decades before this technology really existed within the public sphere. So there's, there's the whole debate of whether this is all, you know, aliens are just a cover for, um, you know, you, you know, domestic projects on technology and domestic technologies and domestic experimental craft, right? There's that whole debate of that, that the, you know, Mirage men, um, that the, you know, the, the U S government spread these alien stories to cover up for their own secret programs. Mm -hmm. But then the, there's evidence of these craft that go back and predate, you know, any kind of programs that would have been able to produce anything like this. So it's, it's hard to, to, to take that, completely at face value either unless there's something else we don't know about so it's certainly an interesting debate but uh I, I think that i think that you know there's hope for us being having a breakthrough at some point just based on what we see around us and then also the the scientific information that's come out um through these foias and stuff over the last couple few years just few years so much information's come out that I really feel like we're not far off from knowing the whole truth and, and getting it all out. This is, I don't know. This is maybe one of the strongest arguments for carrying this society forward, right? Because if the world falls apart, 
So do all of these attempts to come up with cleaner energy sources, new propulsion systems. This is all very dependent on social stability in some way. Would you agree? Yeah, I think um, it's very possible society could collapse in the next you know, couple decades. And this is the, our last, pretty much our last chance to get these technologies out of, out, out of these black programs and into the real world and, and uh, onto drawing boards at real companies rather than, you know, I, it's just crazy. I go back to the 1950s and watch some of the stuff that, you know, Disney and, and NASA and stuff were putting out on what the future was going to be like. And to see like what they thought about way back then and how, you know, where, where did we go wrong? It just stopped. It just like we, we, you know, after the challenge, it seems like after the challenger, uh, people were just, you know, Americans were just bored of, of space launches and the whole space program. And they're like, all right, you know, what's in this for me? You know, how's this going to get me a brand new flat screen TV? And, you know, you know, like, I don't care about this stuff no more. I want everyone, everyone's super concerned with themselves, their own lives and their, you know, custom kitschy kitchens and delivery. Right. <laughs> well, I also feel like real wages in your country didn't really increase since that point, too. So there's like some very legitimate concerns about how you're going to pay for a kitchen at all. Well, it's really crazy because all the boomers basically bought out all the land and, and jacked up the property rates. So we're paying you know more in rent now than we would in, for a mortgage, but no one can save up enough money to get a mortgage or get a, get a house anymore because it's just the way like the whole system's rigged. Um, and a lot of, a lot of millennials and, and, uh, and uh, Gen Xers and, and people in this new generation of kids growing up feel that way. It's just like, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a weird, Weird time to be alive, but uh, there's there's also I, I I like to not you know look at all the negatives because you have to look at like there's so much opportunity in the world right now you know you could look at it in the next in the next five year in ten years the amount of new businesses that are going to come out and grow and become huge huge entities you know and the amount of potential that humanity has right now in all these little areas it's it's incredible. Um, and I think that, that, you know, we need to focus, you need to focus on those positive elements, you know, rather than if you focus on the negative, that's all you'll, you'll see and all you'll, that will encompass your, your worldview. So you really have to, um, like, you know, the way I look at it is just like that wave equation in that Hamiltonian, you have the potential, your potential energy, and you have your kinetic energy. And, you know, you, it's where you apply that wave function will determine how the, those potentials and the your actual physical kinetic energy uh, um, collapse in the wave function in the future. So like what you make of it, right? It's what you make of it. And it's whether what's my, it's whether you put a minus or a plus sign in front of that potential. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I, I always, I have no problem with uh, finding problems with things, even in our own society, but <laughs> it's always like, well, if you're going to tear apart this society, you better have a really good replacement because dark ages suck. I read today yeah. that they uncovered the first mass grave from like 6,000 years ago. So it seems like there's a long, long history of terrible, terrible violence that's always at the edge of human society. That honestly, society is kind of the only thing that stops mass killing. 
Well, you guys like just invented human rights, I think, like 50 years ago. Or something. <laughs> Seriously, it hasn't been that long. We probably don't have any rights when we get there. No, I probably right. haven't gotten yeah. that far. Um, then, then your rights—I don't know—it's—it's it's a crazy world right now. What you have the right to do and and don't have the right to do. Um, it's because it seems like rich people doesn't matter what the laws, because as long as you have enough money to to pay off the lawyers and pay off the judge and pay off the district attorney's office, and you know, if you got enough money, you're doesn't matter what you do, I guess, to a to a certain extent, you know. Why do you think the discussion doesn't start there always? It's like humans are seem to be really tied up about all these political things, but it's like I think there's really only one political issue and you just nailed it on the head. Um I think it's I think a lot of uh people in power right now um use politics as a tool to create division. Uh, within our population to get people fighting with each other instead of because that's one thing they're afraid of is is people like smart people coming together and getting good ideas and saying hey look let's let's work on a way to 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 topple the you know the energy to solve the energy crisis right so we we look at it as solving the energy crisis and this is then this is an argument of language because they see us as we're solving the energy crisis but to them we're threatening their uh stranglehold on on you know energy hegemony or on world you know dominance of energy um and their ability to control and and get lots of money through their control over energy and so they don't view that the same way as as you know we view it because it's to them it's a threat to their way of being and their well-being and their way of life and the fact that they need to, you know, stand on the corpses of thousands of dead children in third world countries in order to have, you know, better a better standing for themselves. Um, and and it's kind of the society that we we've brought up. And it's like, you know, here in America, we complain about the, the most, you know, ridiculous, like little trivial things. And meanwhile, um, we do that through our thousand dollar iphone that was made in you know a factory in malaysia by some 13 year old who was handcuffed to a machine 14 hours a day so where do you draw the line i mean what what, what are we what are we doing with ourselves you know mm-hmm. like it, it's kind of uh it's kind of a sick society in some ways because you know we view our view our success based on you know how many people we can enslave to make our own lives better uh, basically it's it's it, in order to make our lives better we we we've, we don't care about the costs and in, in, in some ways and and we, we go through um we actually go out of our way to hide those issues to and pretend that they don't exist you know to exploit that uh, labor and manufacturing to third world countries or whatever and and uh you know why are there safety net suicide nets outside these iphone factories in these countries and you know it's kind of uh it's kind of crazy society that we've created for ourselves well it's interesting because it doesn't seem like slavery is a particularly new idea i think it goes back at least to the beginning of your written history in almost every culture so right that's kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the you know the older generation being this owning class that just bought buys up and owns everything and and we're just basically a a subscription-based economy society where we we have to like pay pay for everything pay for the air you breathe pay for you know rent pay for your you know we're basically slaves where you're just basically telling us we're slaves that's 
it's exactly what we are. If we can't own anything, if nothing's ours to own and we have to constantly pay for everything, then, then you're telling me that I'm a slave. I can't ever own property. Hmm. By degrees, I can see what you're saying. I mean, it changes with time, right? So it's actually fascinating. If you look at the etymology of the word slave versus the word job, they have an exact inverse correlation. So I think that you can do it if you just Google it. But with the abolishment of slavery at the end of the Civil War in the United States, the use of the word slave started to slowly fall because it wasn't that popular around the world anymore since the, the institution was gone for most countries. And what it was replaced by was job. And that's kind of the world that people live in right now, right? Where there's this sense of, well, you go, you get a job, and maybe one day you'll... Maybe one day you'll run the company, kid. But work your work your way to the top of that corporate ladder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or to Except the top. It's owned by some family that's always owned it. And... Well, there's just too many people and not enough ladders. That's the thing. Like if you had gotten way more ladders to climb, then maybe that would still be true. But more and more people seem like they're centrally employed by institutions, by companies, because. Well, arguably, you could say that those companies do a better job of producing things, right? Like, there's not a Sometimes. there's not a mom yeah. and pop competitor to Apple, right? Or Google, or no. Tesla. I guess Tesla is kind of a mom and pop, but not really. <laughs> right. But so you just don't have you need massive, massive, massive structures to accomplish things on a global scale. And most people will go work in those positions and it's not possible to rise to the top of that hierarchy because, you know, instead of a company of 100 people and one person at the top, now it's a company of 100,000 people with one person at the top. And that's just how it goes. So the more people who can start their own projects and actually get them off the ground like you, the better the world will be, right? At least I think. Well, so. I hope so. I mean, if there's anything I learned in the in by you know this time of my life, uh, 38, and uh, going through the workforce and work field and having a lot of different jobs, I, I realized that you have to you know if you want it, you have to build your own ladder. You can't just rely on somebody else's ladder or wait in line for the next ladder that comes along. Or, or you know, you have to build your own ladder sometimes. And uh, that's you know what I did when I went out on my own with my own business couple of years ago doing construction work instead mm -hmm. of working under someone i said you know i'm gonna start i gotta get my insurance and my license with this when i got my taxes back i went and got my insurance and my license and and then i started working for myself and bidding my own jobs and 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 being my own boss you know forcing my own self to get up in the morning to go to my own my own work you know and then having to keep track of it so it, it's not everyone can do that. I understand, but and and sometimes you have to work up to that and save up for it, and and you know wait for the opportune time to until you can do it, and yeah. just you know and yeah. So I don't know. It's uh, it's a lot to be said about that, but um, I think uh, I think what we're doing right now is is the right thing. Starting out with the grassroots movement of a bunch of people that are just super interested in this already, and creating this hub or this. Uh, environment where they can all 
get together and talk with what we're doing and, and these discussion groups and, and chats that we've uh, set up and these conferences. I'm not sure we, we, we've debated. We can't get, if we can't get continue to up the quality uh, of the guests that we're going to have in this conference, because I don't want it to just devolve into, we're just bringing anyone on. I'd really <laughs> like to get better quality guests onto this conference and get, and, and open it up to more people. But if we can't do that, we might close it down for a couple months and then restart it again in the fall. Um, and I think in the meantime, I might take some of the better people that we've met through uh, these conferences and just interview them individually on my channel. Me, me do like a one-on-one -on -one with them and, um, or, or get different people on to debate each other. I would, that's always mm -hmm. fun. There's been some really entertaining and colorful emails being exchanged <laughs> in, within mm -hmm. some of these groups, um, including, you know, some really, some rather, rather funny, <laughs> funny insults and, and, and character, uh, um, cartoons and stuff like that. It's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of funny business going on. And, and I would love to get these, these colorful characters out and, and, and on my channel to discuss these things in an open environment and kind of, uh, and hash them out. Cause it's, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly been fun doing this, you know, collaborative effort, but it, where there's too many cooks in the kitchen, it also gets a little crowded. And, uh, so it might be cool to back off and, and, and just do some, um, individual interviews and stuff. That's what I'm, we're thinking about in the next couple of months here with, with the, uh, the direction we want to go in with the channel. Mm -hmm. So cool. I'm looking forward to that. Do you have any advice for people looking to pursue their interests in an independent way like you have? Um, you know, I would definitely like talk to experiences is, is the best teacher. I would say, um, if you're, you're going to learn, uh, you want to talk to someone who's done this before, you know, to someone who has some experience, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's, it's hard to find people with experience, especially if you're trying new things or doing new things. But I tend to look at, um, you know, it, use experience as your teacher. I mean, if you, I come up with so many crazy ideas that I, that, you know, I'll think of as million dollar ideas that are just, you know, like the, I don't know, it's, it's all about looking at, you can't just look at experience too, what other people do, because sometimes you have a new idea. That's, that's something different that, that is worth really valuable and will make a lot of money. So definitely look for experience, but also, you know, understand intellectual property and, and uh, your ideas are, are, are valuable. Um, and mm -hmm how to, you know, understand how to, how to work with intellectual property and, uh, protect your intellectual property. It's a lot, it's a long battle because, you know, sometimes if you want to do that, you got to make, you got to write your own patents and apply for your own patents and get your own patents. And in order to write a patent, you really need to be an attorney almost, you know, or, or you need to hire a patent attorney to help you with the patent or you're never going to get it through. And then how do you hire the right people? And then there's these companies, these patents online companies that, that you write to them. And then they're, they're just basically idea stealing farms and they, they patent the thing for you, but they stole your idea. Wow. And so you got to watch out about those. And uh, there's, um, so I, I, you got to be careful. Definitely, you know, go talk to other people who have done it before if you can and find, you know, or find people who are doing something similar and listen to their stories, listen to their advice. Uh, cause experience is the best, best teacher out there. Um, nothing's nothing beats doing it. Right. Yeah. And getting your hands dirty. Always true. So we only got a few minutes left and I, 
wanted to ask you a question I ask all the humans at the end. And maybe you've already addressed this a little bit, but what do you think is the biggest threat to your species or to your civilization in the next decade or century or year or five minutes? What's the scariest thing and what do you make of it? Right. Well, um, right now, if you ask the mainstream media, they might tell you uh, it's... Uh, you know, the coronavirus, but, uh, you know, looking at history of diseases and viruses, you know, humanity survived the black plague without modern medicine. Uh, you know, I don't think, I don't think we have to worry about, uh, you know, a lot of people might die if, 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 if the virus, if a virus got out of control, but I don't think it would necessarily be the end of humanity altogether. Right. So uh, that's, I wouldn't, so let's, let's take that off the picture of the biggest threat to humanity. It's definitely not a biggest threat. I would, I would actually view, you know, government, in my opinion, I feel like government tyranny um, and the, the kind of infrastructure that we're setting up in response or to this coronavirus thing is actually a more of a threat to the future of our civilization than the virus itself, arguably, in my opinion. And what um, infrastructure are you seeing come up that you are worried about? I'm worried about um, just a, an environment of of the, this whole this whole fu this whole future that they're portraying um, that this whole it, what, what looks like they're trying to build. There's been a lot of it's, it looks like they're almost trying to push us towards this uh, new type of, of, of society and uh, with laws and stuff and 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 a slavery. I, I, I don't know if you've played Half-Life or one of these other like these video games where, where we live in this, you know, dystopian future where there's just a, a small elite group of people that absolutely control everything and that the rest of us, us are all just complete slaves. And, um, you know, they can, they have total freedom of information over all of us to track and watch all of us and, and, and spy on all of us, but we can never spy on these people and know what they're doing in their, in their ivory towers and, 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 and these rich people. And as, as that is definitely going on right now, um, I feel like there's there's wealthy people right now that are um, concentrating that wealth in the hands of fewer and fewer individuals, while basically turning the rest of society into slaves. Um, from lack of a better term, I mean, you can't. We talked about having a job versus slavery and stuff, but yeah, I feel like we're we're all going towards a slave society in the in the in the in the future. I think that's a that it's a slippery slope and that 1984 the dystopian future is is a lot more probable than a utopian future hmm. and the only difference that makes that is is is, is freedom uh freedom of, of, hum, of humans and the more freedoms we continue to give up and sacrifice i feel like in the future we're going you're going to have less freedoms and with less freedom comes you know less ability less opportunities and less potential more restricted potential in that wave function. So um, I think we have to be very careful of uh, the steps that we take now in the future of the planet and what we're sacrificing and what we're gaining by those, by making those sacrifices and, and what we're giving up and make really educated and thoughtful decisions on what we're, you know, what we're doing with our society and what we are afraid of. Cause I tell you what, I'm more, I'm a lot more afraid of my government than I am of, uh, of, you know, getting sick. Hmm. Sorry. And spending some effort trying to imagine what that new government looks like, too. Seems like just throwing it out wouldn't be very fun either. 
Yeah, I uh, I think that AI and uh, autonomous voting, um, you know, the voting machines that we have that have been given to us and developed those systems, I feel like they could be replaced by you know blockchain technology or some of these other technologies easily uh, for for more um, a voting system that doesn't restrict voters and is more uh, is more safe and reliable and less susceptible to fraud i feel uh, that is essential probably one of the most essential things that we we can do in the next you know four years transparent uh, yeah a transparent election where there can't be this this issue that there was with the last election where where half the entire country is screaming fraud and then half of the people are saying no just shut up and deal with it and and it's it's sort of uh it's like no uh things need to change. We need a different system in, in, in place. Um, it's sort of, I, I've had this argue with argument about mainstream media and, and the, the, the argument that we live in a duopoly. We don't even have a, cho- a choice of, of who we get to be our president. We're giving two options from the ruling elite and that's all we get to choose from here. And we don't actually have a a, a, a real vote um, and that it's not given to us by the media. They've given us two options and they say, you're throwing away your vote if you vote for anyone else, but these two candidates are, who are pre-selected that we've given to you. I think that's, that's dangerous in, in the future for democracy and for the future of our planet um, and our, and especially our government, because these, we need to get money out of politics. This is the biggest thing. Money is corrupt is corrupt as heck. We have all these rich, stupid people making all the rules and um, we need to kick them out and prevent them from making rules. And we need to make rules that prevent them from getting rich and prevent and, and take their money away and give it to more charitable and, and amicable causes that will uh, help the planet rather than force us all into slavery because that's what's profitable. Do you think a third party is possible in your future of your country? If we get the voting issue fixed and the infrastructure, yeah, mm. if we if we can get that fixed. But up until then, I don't think I think they've got it pretty much locked down. They understand the whole process of elections and and the whole the whole game that needs to be played. I've I've watched mm. it run. I've watched it run like a script every election since uh, you know I started paying attention to these things in college at age eighteen with the the, the Bush and Kerry election mm. where it was revealed they were both members of the same secret society in college, but they were <laughs> running against each other. No, they're high five and backstage and stuff. They're sworn blood brothers to a, to a, to a secret oath that we don't even we can't we as the public don't even have a right to know or read or, or know what that that secret oath was. So it's it's uh, it's quite uh, it's quite revealing, I believe, um, of what the whole system has, is and and how contrived it really it really and truly is, and how um, hostile it is to outsiders or anyone that actually comes in and wants to change things <laughs> and that seems reflected on all levels right you see it in politics you see it in science you probably see it in the cultural world too we should talk to somebody about elections we should it's a good idea yeah james o'keefe no <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's, weird. He, it's weird. He was on Tim Pool's show like a week after after I was. I saw him. I was like, hey, I was I was sitting in right in that chair. That's so funny. <laughs> like, funny man. Well, yeah. it's we're all connected. I feel uh, that you know you're going to have lots of interesting people sitting in my chair on your show and uh, in the future. And it's kind of cool to. I I think I found you guys one time. I was searching for alien scientists and, and I <laughs> found you guys a couple months ago. I was first and. Uh, 
I was like, wow, there's somebody else who has the idea for alien scientists and stuff. And I, and, and uh, I think that's great um, that you guys are, are, are the real deal. I mean, so, sorry, you guys are the real alien scientists. <laughs> Technically you guys are aliens to us, but you know, yes, I'll let it slide. True. So we're like, I'm like the earth alien scientists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, nah, it's cool, man. And uh, I, I think that, um, we're, we're going to, we're going to have uh, a lot of, uh, I think that you guys are doing a good thing for getting people to uh, break outside their shells and think outside the box, because there's going to be a time in the future where we're going to, we're going to be, we're going to be talking to lots of different uh, creatures like yourselves. I believe it. Theirs is a little box and the world is big. Well, it's been really fun, Jeremy. I hope we can talk again sometime. Definitely guys. Take care. Yeah, Thank man. you. See ya. Nanu nanu. Ha <laughs> <laughs>